can I enjoy you enormously on the classica? Oh Thank yes, very much. I watched the entire, the entire the whole thing. thing. Surely not. I usually thing. just dip into Steve's commentary so that I can say that I have watched it when, in fact, it was you know a five five to ten minute period. But this was I, a full ninety. I heard you say the. You did very well. Enjoyed that bit. What was your favourite bit of the commentary? I think it was when you when you said. Now's, now's the time for the second half to start. I think that was the best bit. <laughs> really enjoyed that. Really. Let's take a look at the teams. No, I thought you were really good. I thought it was, well, it was a great game. You go Holland, don't you? Yeah. Which is the correct... Yes. Pronunciation. Yes. But do you, do you, think, do you think of his father as Alfinder Holland or Alfinder Haaland? Um... Deep down in your soul. Harland, isn't it? We, yes. it's Harland. Say, it is Harland. It's yeah, Harland. So, what, so now you're telling me I'm wrong, but I should. No, 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 no. no. There is no allowing for growth, or indeed, when I was like 13, I'm not allowed to now be slightly more informed. No, it's not that. I'm broadcasting I, now. I, I think it's interesting that, that for all that Steve, who is an assiduous researcher, knows that that name is pronounced Holland, that something deep within his, his, his black heart <laughs> tells him that that it's Alfinda Harland and that's how he wants to pronounce it. Do you know what do I mean? Know, do you know how you get, you get beyond it is that there's absolutely no way that you could imagine Erling Haaland being snapped in half by Roy Keane. No, Roy Keane would, would come off worse. bounce off him. Yeah. So you yeah. can, yeah. You can yeah. disassociate the father and son through, through do, those means. Do you think that was part of it? Do you think Alfie was determined to produce someone who, who, was, who, was, who could, could sort of obtain his revenge? A generational revenge. Yes. I just wonder if you, if you snap Erling Haaland in half, you probably get two people about the size of Alfie Inga Haaland. Is this, is this some kind of comic book revenge thing where the, the victim grows an offspring in a lab who's like a 2.0 version yeah, yeah. of the child he would have been if born by conventional means just so he can go out into the footballing world and I must be stronger I must be taller I must be somehow somehow two-footed because normally your children are just disappointing versions of ourselves aren't they really they're not a step up they're they're a step across at best but I think it's a decline certainly from my own personal experience sideways and down yeah the Ray Wilkins way (laughs) (laughs) don't put that in don't put that in yeah that's a crab um, the uh, Chinch, the the final soccer story um, of your absence was um, about the very earliest tweets of the official Manchester City account, which took place back in two thousand and nine, and were written by our friend Tim Oscroft. Having uh-huh. heard that uh, that soccer story, uh, Tim has emailed to say hi, Hugh. Nice to get a name check regarding those tweets on my favourite podcast. The first ever tweet from the official Manchester City account was also written by me from Hamburg Airport and said something like, the eagle has landed. Team whisked away from plane while we head for the hotel. I had absolutely no guidance on how to write a tweet, so I just followed my instincts as those hint-related tweets and me putting my name on it show. Now, last week, I'll explain, Chinch, what he said, but I wish I could remember why Hinch was thrown out of the press box probably for chocolate fudge cake smuggling, because that re- made reference to another oh. tweet by Pete Ferguson. And the huge Ferris wheel gag was an open goal for me. Sorry, uh, says Tim. So, Chinch, can you remember why you were thrown out of the Hamburg? Schalke. That, no, it was Schalke, no, wasn't it? No, it was Hamburg. Hamburg. No, I was... Because do you know when they do the press are allowed in, when the teams go out to do the first 10, 15 minutes of training and the press are only allowed to watch the first 10 or 15, when they do nothing, they just basically warm up. And then the away for officials come in yeah. and say, you can't watch anymore. And This is, this is just too interesting. It was, some, <laughs> it was, no, it was, there was kind of, we'd only been there about five minutes and I knew it was pointless, but I just wanted to say, well, we haven't, we haven't been here 15 minutes and they, you know what they're like? I'm sure it was at, Sch- it was at Schalke. No, it was Hamburg. definitely when City played Schalke. City played Hamburg in 2009. But City have played Schalke, haven't they? they uh, have. Yes. Yeah, they have, yeah. Yes, they did play Schalke. Yeah, I, that's, but, but I didn't yeah, go that's on when that I got trip. turfed out. They, they played in the, quarterfinals of the UEFA, UEFA Cup. How much were you drinking on the plane, Chinch, that you didn't know which German city? No, I've never, that, I've that never been to Hamburg. Have a tipple. I've never been to Hamburg. I've, I, Schalke, I've been Schalke, Schalke, Hamburg. Done when Steve, I was there. Rory was on that trip too. We were all there. Chinch, this is, someone's not asking you about a stag do. This is not a stag do in Hamburg that you've got to deny until your dying days. This That's is the worrying thing. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know I've done it and denying it. I don't actually remember being there. But Schalke, I do remember being turfed out. What, what was that, we... Hamburg? <laughs> <laughs> was it Schalke? 
It's one of the, it's definitely one of the two. This is Set Beast Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. Thank you, Ferris. <laughs> Joining me are Rory Smith, Megatron, Stephen Wyeth, Mumra, and Andy Hinchcliffe, Mr. Burns. And his return is indeed excellent. The food is your continuing suggestions for any food banks that you would like to promote via us. Send them to setbeastmenu at gmail.com. And the football is chinch. Do you know what we're talking about today? I've not horror. been involved for how long? Four weeks? There's absolutely like... no chance of me knowing what we're talking about. Is it? It must be something to do with football, I presume. Since, yeah. since to be fair, I don't know what we're talking about either. Oh, good, good. That makes two of us. Are you okay, Rory? You've been strangely distant the last few days. It's normally a sort of flurry of activity from you in the build-up. You know, in recent weeks, we've got used to you suggesting ideas. I not am completely, um... not completely ignoring the ones that other people have had. I, what have I been doing? I don't know. Was was I in Hamburg or was I in Schalke? I can't remember. Schalke's not even a place. Yes, exactly. We, we kind of completely passed over the fact that Schalke doesn't exist. Well, no, I think it does. I think is Schalke not a district of Gelsenkirchen? Is that not right? I think well, that's right. I like think Everton. It, yeah, it's not. It's not like Wraith. It's not Port Vale. No. Although that's that is a mystery. Why is it? Why? What's that about? Uh, well, Chinch, you'll be relieved to know it is a simple question today. How much football is too much football? With every Premier League game on television now for almost a season's worth of football, are we less enthusiastic about the prospect of riding that train all the way to May? Or is that a cynical view held only by those in the luxurious position of being able to complain about attending football matches for work purposes? Names will remain unnamed, but let's just say one of us overheard such a grumbling recently. And while we're getting comfortable to the point of indifferent to -to wall-to-wall football, does that make it more likely we'll miss it when it's gone. That is all to come. Now you can get in touch with the podcast, setpiecemenu at gmail.com, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube as well. We begin our correspondence with Alan Shepard, not the astronaut, who writes from a position of authority on our ongoing Latin debate. Dear Homer, Virgil, Dante, and Milton, I'm a little late to the party on this, having caught up on episodes 219 and 220 this week, but as the holder of a PhD in classics, oh, oh I was delighted is, to hear oh, an email from that another is not, classicist on episode 219. That is not going to earn you very much money, is it, at all? He says, confirming your place is the preeminence classics football crossover podcast. I think that's true. In addition to the wonderful sense of community and the podcast's ability to step back and survey football from a much needed macro level perspective, the podcast's frequent classical references and insights also into raising small children make it, to me, essential listening. I, like Rory, have told my three-year-old son that he is acting like Neymar, though not to the extent that he, like Rory's son Ed, references him every time he falls over. However, my son has cottoned on to the long-standing distaste that I have for Manchester United, a legacy of growing up in the 1990s, and loves to wind me up by telling me that they're his favourite team. Uh, So I have some work to do there. Having just caught up on the last few weeks, I'd also like to send very best wishes to Chinch and his family too. I hope to hear his opinions on all things classical very soon. All the best, Dr. Alan Shepard. He puts doctor in brackets, but uh, the sense is very much bolded and underlined. Um, I just want to make this abundantly clear. I think on football, it's maybe worth listening to us. On classics, not really. On on parenting, definitely not. Do mm. not, like oh, people should not be. Yes. People should not be treating this as like a, like a parenting advice podcast. That, that would be disastrous for, for the children involved. I feel there's lots of positive parenting out. I think what we do is tend to tell people just how awful having children can be. And yeah. it's important to know that. It the is. The flip side of the coin. It's not all great, is it? Or even some of it. Yeah. Yeah. For, can I just say, by the way, I know I've been away for an extended period of time. I don't want to go into the ins and outs of what happened, but I really do appreciate three colleagues here have been so kind to me in that period of time. And apparently you've had lots of e- lots of emails or just a few emails, lots of emails to say they've been thinking of me, which is absolutely delightful. But considering our listenership, I would have been surprised if we hadn't had lots of emails. So I'm glad that we have. Last week's episode was about post-match interviews. And we have this on that from Shane Thomas. Dear insert name of obscure quartet, as at this point, the listeners have used up all the famous ones. My email's about post-match interviews, which you discussed on episode 220, and that despite the undoubted competence and skill of those who work in this field, the mechanism of the post-match interview seems anathema with one that enlightens about the game. As Rory said, it is hardly fair to expect players to be able to elucidate on the finer points of a game when they are A, probably physically and mentally exhausted, B, often performing their skills by muscle memory instead of logical detachment, and C, are yet to do the debrief on the match with their coaches. The same goes for managers. They've also committed a lot of mental focus on the touchline, so I wouldn't expect them to emotionally switch off and be clear-headed 15 minutes later. If I asked 
all the journalists who were at the Etihad when Manchester City won the league in 2012 to talk me through their process five minutes after they filed their match report, I wouldn't expect much in the way of great insight. It feels that the point of the post-match interview isn't to get information, but to get drama, to show its product mm. as exciting, as something you have to keep your eyes on. Save for the Aguero goal, one could argue the most iconic moment of Sky's football coverage over the years was Kevin Keegan saying, I would love it if we beat them. Love it. If the point of these interactions were to inform us, would it be more advisable to make players and managers available to the press a day or two after the game when passions have cooled? And searching questions are more likely to be answered intelligently. The fact that this wouldn't lend to live TV coverage or highlight shows underscores my point that our game seems to be driven more by putting on a show than cultivating a smarter fan base. It seems a pity because I think there is more demand for a considered style of football coverage than media companies realise. Shane, you're absolutely right. That's why we remain steadfastly independent. Um, and by the way, <laughs> as an accompaniment, and we'll get your thoughts after this, here is Chris Wickham who you will remember is the communications director at Brentford, who Chinch thought worked for QPR because, you know, those colours, those badges, absolutely identical. And uh, we have so seen quite a lot of each other <laughs> and we always high five now because we, we, we know <laughs> each other so well. And I do know who he works for now. Even though you're not supposed to high five anybody at the moment, but still to be he a mean, he, he means with, with his on, elbow. With on. Are you, Chinch, are you back wearing your... Surgical gloves on and then we put surgical gloves on, gardening gloves Full on, PPE. wicket keepers gloves on and then we high five. <laughs> Uh, to B.A. Hannibal Murdoch and face. I was listening to the latest set piece menu on my way to the Norwich versus Brentford game last week. I was interested to listen to your thoughts about post-match media work and the TV interview in particular. I wanted to share a heavily redacted anecdote with you and some follow-up thoughts as well. As you know, I work for Brentford. And at a game in the past nine months post-COVID, a reporter working for a TV station was overheard talking to his director, producer, floor manager about post-match interviews. The conversation was basically that they would ask for a particular Brentford player because we were losing the game. It was incredibly important and that player was thought to be combustible. He actually isn't, but they don't know that. This was discussed between the parties and overheard by a Brentford employee. It was a specific request to the detriment of the player and club to make good television. I share this anecdote because I think we all need to be clear what the post-match interviews are for entertainment. I've long held the belief that anything done immediately after a match is of limited value as analysis. The participants are far too emotionally invested in what has happened and there is too little time to deconstruct the events to give proper consideration. The media of all types are hoping to get some words that help them generate newspaper sales or social media clicks and shares while the clubs and individuals are fulfilling their contractual obligations because that pays their bills. If we want proper analysis of football matches, we would better be leaving all interviews until the morning after, gathering at a training ground or via a Zoom call and having a proper discussion of what has happened. No one involved could pretend that they had not seen particular events as that would be ridiculous and it gives time for any emotion to subside. I know it has little chance of happening, but it would be an interesting concept. As with everything, it is the viewers and readers that will decide ultimately what happens with post-match interviews. If people did not watch or engage with interviews, companies would stop doing them. If newspaper or web quotes pieces were not read, they would not be created. Fans want to hear from those involved in matches. I do think, however, there's always a use in reminding everyone that it is entertainment. Sports interviewers are not holding our political leaders to account for the way they spend our taxes and run our country and those being interviewed should remember that they are talking to the fans and trying to inform it does not have to be a combative process this is what we try to do stay safe that is from chris that's a really good email and really, a really good perspective and to be honest of all the clubs in, in all the world who might try and do something innovative like a post-match debrief the day after you'd, you'd probably put your money on brentford wouldn't you they they think a little bit differently he that both of those emails are right that that the, the structure around football is designed to entertain, not to inform. And that, I suppose, is, is unavoidable because football itself is a form of entertainment. So that, that's probably what, what people want. And I think it's really easy in our, in our own little echo chambers to, to think that you see it about the tactics thing a lot, that there's, there's, there's a cohort of people, of, of a certain type of fan and a certain type of journalist who kind of maintained ardently that that what people want is is much more tactical or analytical coverage of, of football that they want you know detailed I want I want to know see the heat maps and you know Chinch kind of aims to provide that in his in his co-coms when allowed and I think there is a demand for that but the vast majority of people I would guess and I, I would put myself in the in the first cohort I think the vast majority of people really don't they really don't want detailed tactical analysis they don't want to see in-depth data on people on you know pressing patterns or whatever it might be they don't they don't want to engage with the game necessarily in that in that level of, of depth the vast majority of people I suspect want the the kind of soap opera element of football that's what that's what's made it so popular that's certainly what's driven the Premier League's sort of rise to prominence is that sense of soap opera there's probably a parallel in this week 
that you could make with a royal family. That, that's how we see that that story. It's a it's a narrative storyline of a soap opera. It's not, you know, there's, there's all that all the faux outrage about Harry and Meghan kind of destabilizing the monarchy. People don't give a shit about destabilizing the monarchy. It's a soap opera to people. That's 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 how we engage with the royal family, and we we engage with football as a form of entertainment in the same way as we we engage essentially with kind of celebrity culture. And you don't want like an XG map on who's in Little Mix or whatever. Like it's just I the TV. I was the guy the, that brought up Little Mix. The TV companies and the newspapers meet public demand. And the bit where to me, we maybe abrogate our responsibility a little bit is that I think we are able to influence public demand. I think if you can present that stuff in an engaging way and say to the, not only the relatively small section of the audience that, that you know, decent, but, but still minority, minority, this is interesting and here's the stuff that you want. But if you can make that, that stuff as engaging as possible for everybody else, you might help to shift the, the balance a little bit. You might, you might be able to say, look, this is a soap opera and it's fine to enjoy the soap opera, but this, this will help you understand the plot lines of the soap opera a little bit more. If you were going to have a, a statistical rundown of pop group participation, surely Sugar Babes would be the one that would give you the, the greatest yeah, depth yeah, of field yeah. and Little Mix. But, you know, I, yeah. I, I take your point on board. I, I don't know who Little Mix are, really. I'm just, just, just trying to appeal to, to, to Hugh. The you know, Sugar Babes are ripe for some sort of kind of squad rotation style analysis, minutes played. Uh, chances created per minute, that sort of business. You could do that with Shooter Babes, Babes easily. Defining era, best combinations, best formation. Rivalries. Up front. Rivalries, yeah. I and mean, best formation, probably probably three, naught, naught <laughs> for Shooter Babes. Or naught, naught, three. I mean, you know what? Nought, you, know, three. you need them at the front of the stage. Although I think there was a stage where it was kind of one, two, naught, wasn't it, really? That two of them were kind of the backing sinners. The, uh, yeah. Anyway, this is this is this is set piece menu. We talk about stuff. classics and sugar babes. Elsewhere in Europe and in some of the other big leagues, they do have more regular access to to manager and players. Don't I think in some in some countries, maybe even every day that the the club is is in is in the training ground, they may have some sort of access, which leads to more analytical tactical questions being asked because they have more opportunity to have those sorts of discussions and I have read once or twice some fairly scathing pieces about the British media and our lack of curiosity about such things being demonstrated by the way we go about pre and post match interviews and press conferences but the fact is is that we only get access to, to people in those environments and Rory will probably know better than me and probably has asked these questions more often than I have but in my experience when you do try and get some kind of tactical yeah, not interested. people that comes, they're not interested in giving it so all no. this stuff about all this sort of accusations that, that the, the British media are not interested in these sort of things don't delve deeply into them don't provide it for their their viewers listeners readers etc it means it's just it's just not that they, they don't want to talk about it and i don't think it much as that that suggestion from from chris at, at brentford that you know the day after or two days after is the time for these discussions i still don't think anybody would would, would want to have them steve if you're looking at say post-match interviews directly after a game surely you want to tap into the drama and the emotion are you given a player to interview or do you ask for a player to interview how does it normally work because i was really interested to say well the, the media companies wanted someone who wasn't necessarily kind of relevant to what had actually happened but someone who'd give them something explosive i've never heard of that before normally we go for a player who's had an integral part in yeah the events is that what you would do you'd ask for a player that maybe scored the winning goal or had a hand in it or was man of the match is that what you would do to tell the story of the game and tap into the drama and the emotion of the game yeah well in terms of my my experience of doing it in post-match and having the ability to re to request who you speak to that would be for match of the day and yes as a, so as a general rule to fit with the the edit of the game and the way they want to reflect that in the in the post-match analysis you're going to want to speak to both managers and at least a key player from the game and maybe a key player from each side. So that is always the way that you would go. And as a general rule, I'd say 90% of the time that the request is facilitated. I remember um, Spurs, so Spurs generally quite good with the media and Simon, in, the, in the glory days of, of me covering Tottenham, which would be kind of seven or eight years ago, it was, it was Simon and, and Richard with the two press officers and got on really well with both of them. Simon's still there. He's, he's a really good lad. This is not in any way criticism of them but we worked out after a while that in the mid zone which obviously as we talked about last week is like an hour after the game but it's still it's still still considered kind of immediately post-match to footballers and they are still broadly resentful of having to do it we worked out that the reason that we could never get the people we asked for 
was because both Simon and Richard went in went into the dressing room. You you they'd come to you, which is not all clubs do, and say who do you want, and you'd say Robbie Keane or whatever. Oh, those really were the halcyon days. Who else was Who else was playing for Spurs at the time? Um, Tom Huddleston, uh, Jake Livermore, one of the greats. And you'd kind of say, right, we want one of them. And they'd be like, all right, yeah, they're great, lads, great. All right, we'll go, we'll, go, we'll, go, we'll go in, we'll go in. That is a really good impression of Simon, uh, just so you know. Is that Sai or Dick? The, that's Sai. And um, Richard, Sai. Richard, Richard's a bit gruffer, a bit gruffer. Um, yeah, and they'd... Uh, and they'd <laughs> But we worked out that the reason that we could never get the right person was just the way they framed the question. So they didn't go into the dressing room and say, Tom, the media have asked for you, come out. Or Robbie, it's your turn, come on. They were going in and saying, or we, we perceived that they were going in and saying, Robbie, you don't want to do the media, do you? And he was going, well, no, no, I don't. That, and there is an ex- come exact, <laughs> exact same situation. We know that. We know. Is it a, somebody who previously worked for Manchester United and doesn't anymore, but you still won't name her. Um, <laughs> We, we asked for Roy Keane once and when it was particularly relevant and it wasn't a stretch, it wasn't unbelievable that we should ask for Roy Keane. Because he's combustible. Because he's combustible. Yeah, we wanted the narrative and then to, to entertain everybody. And, and it was relayed to us that the, the question was put to him directly in exactly that way. Yeah. Roy, you don't want to do local media, do you? You don't want to do Key and BBC, do you? And of course, who gets asked that question and doesn't then answer no you know who's gonna go well actually against your suggestion i'd really like to do something that i normally wouldn't you'd be surprised die but i do want to do it oh, well there's there's who it was i really like those two nerdy looking pasty white guys <laughs> i was going to say to, to steve if you look around the, the premier league now that, that's why i was so surprised at uh at someone saying well we, we want someone who could really kind of lift the lid and maybe know who he's talking about at brentford maybe i'm wrong but are there many premier league players that you'd say you know what i'm not going to go with the, the, who scored the the winning goal in the ninth but i'm going to go with someone who i think's got you know is going to come out with something if i are there are there players in the premier league that you could think you know what I'd really like to get them in front of a microphone because I know that they've kind of lift the lid a little bit. I think there's always been players that that give good copy or audio. There's always been players that are kind Particularly of Particularly in defeat, when you haven't got yeah. a goal scorer to go to, yeah. Well, there was, we, I'm sure I've done this this stale and not very good joke, joke before, but there was, a, there was a period at United where we were convinced that Fergie was, was bringing Michael Carrick on as a late substitute just so he could do the mix down. <laughs> Carrick's good, Carrick's good talking to the press, get him on in the 85th minute. And the, so there's always been players who are good talkers and there's always, as Hugh says, there's always been players who've been, who are good talkers in defeat and are perceived as being worthwhile talking to because they will give you a line effectively. And Joe I think Hart, that's crucial. Joe Hart would always do it for me. Yeah. And it's not, I, I don't think you'd ever phrase it that, that they're combustible necessarily, but, but there, there is an awareness amongst, amongst journalists, whether that's print or audio or TV, that, that certain players give you a good line more than others. I think what's interesting that this last season, the, the interviews that go sort of semi-viral that the, the TV companies particularly are now really clearly trying to get are with the players who are who give you something that plays well on social media. And that isn't necessarily like a rant. It's something unexpected. It's something quite coherent. It's something that's quite long. So it's people like Bamford, your mate, Chinch, and, and James Madison. The James Madison interview, I think, is, is the kind of yeah, boilerplate yeah. of what of what TV companies but that, kind of Lu- Lewis Dunk after that that goal that was disallowed against for, yeah. for Brighton. Was that was that what they is that what they wanted? Well, look, but see, in that, that's just journalistic responsibility. That Lewis Dunk was the central character in that story. Well, Lee Mason was the central character in that story, and the only person really who would have who would be able to kind of explain precisely what happened is Lewis Dunk. So I think in that situation... I like to hear from Pascal Gross, to be fair, because he really can verbalise a, a, a thorny situation. So it, that kind of meets both requirements that, as Steve says, it's it, you want someone who played an integral part in the key moment of the game, so if you've but got, also you want someone so you've who's got quite Kyle Bartley. Kyle Bartley scores the winning goal for a team threatened with relegation. But Dunk is the interview there. You yeah. have to... Ev- anybody yeah. and everybody would go would go and say, I, I, you, I want Lewis Dunk. You well, would you, not you, be doing you, your your your... This is a bit high and mighty, but you basically wouldn't be being a responsible journalist if okay. you weren't asking for Lewis Dunk. But also, as, as, as host broadcasters, you get one player from each side, so you, you'd come you out. Also have Carl Bartley, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 it's a good point about the James Madison interview because it's something that we should have mentioned last week about where it does go well and it goes well for the kind of reasons that we were probably promoting last week in that you do actually get a conversation with insights, even though it is immediately after the game, and you uh, allow the player to express themselves, and the player also feels like it's an opportunity to yeah. express themselves, whereas some 
sometimes obviously players will not want to do it and they're so reticent that they don't actually give you any uh, anything interesting. There is a middle ground. You don't have to be controversial. You can just be interesting. Uh, finally, from Tom Stanley in Gloucester, dear Moomin, Snufkin, Sniff and Little Mai, I've been thoroughly enjoying a commercial sponsorship podcast with the side touch of light relief football discussion. SPM clearly has a knack for finding the right suppliers for the right products in the right regions. In a case of life imitating humour, I needed to draw your attention to a press release by Swansea City announcing that at long last they have a partnership with the Turmeric Company to be the club's official turmeric supplier. This was met with great celebration and cheer by fans who had often wondered about the club's turmeric needs and how they would be met. I thought you would enjoy the keen business acumen and show as it reflects your portfolio of suppliers for incredibly specific products. Fans will now be looking forward to warming and flavoursome soups and curries at the Liberty, hopefully just in time for a late summer return. Hope you're also able to get a good deal on turmeric, chives, saffron, and your other spice and herb needs. Keep up the good work. Listening to the pod is a highlight of my week. That's from Tom Stanley. Uh, Tom, there will be a development on this front next week, although it will not be related to spices. Uh, correspondence of any kind to menu at gmail.com. And to be fair, that, that, that relationship between the turmeric company and Swansea had been a, a long time cumin. <laughs> We've missed you. Do you know uh, why I said that? Because we, <laughs> we did this story on the Sky podcast yesterday, and that line was written by somebody else, which they used. So I've just snaffled it. And it's a belter. Uh, Welcome back, Change. Whilst we wipe the tears from our eyes, we will move on to a conversation about football on one of the many football podcasts that focuses on whether there's too much football. Usually, the only kind of incessant football we experience is. Uh, rather jamboree infused whether it's a major tournament or even project restart and the culmination of the champions and europa leagues last summer with their pandemic enforced novelty factor there is a sense of both scheduling and emotional intensity that burns brightly but relatively briefly however apart from the ill-fated reintroduction of crowds in september and the related pay-per-view mishap there has now been almost a season's worth of premier league football with every game available on television this is had the knock-on effect of blanketing what the premier league calls a match week with almost most incessant fixtures and with the season truncated for obvious reasons there is less time between those match weeks anyway but is there a disconnect between those working in the industry feeling that that is a hamster wheel spinning beneath them and those enjoying it on the television or are they too becoming more and more disengaged as their rare football watching treat turns more and more into televisual wallpaper so how much football is too much football well, if we cast our minds back to when we knew what this season was going to, to look like, the, the delayed start, the contracted nature of, of the games, most people, apart from that, that small minority who are led by Danny Baker, who believe that unless they are in attendance, football should not be allowed to be played. Everybody else viewed it as being, well, it's not ideal, but do you know what? We're just going to have to get on with it. At some point, we're going to have to catch up and, and get ourselves through to the end of the season. And it's going to be a bit attritional. There's going to be some unusual games. There's going to be a lot of injuries. And we're going to have to be very careful with all COVID-related matters and player welfare and, and things such as that. And now we've got to the beginning of spring. All of the things that were generally predicted have come to the fore. And yet, rather than people patting, patting themselves on, on the back for their moments of clairvoyance, seem to be furious that all of those things have happened. Mm. And across that there's, there's too much football and we need to do something about it. And, and how we can't go on like this and cancel the international break as though kicking that can down the road in terms of getting qualification started for the next World Cup is somehow going to be a long-term solution. And I, I don't really understand where this, where this mindset has come from in that we, we knew something was going to happen. It's happened and we're complaining about it. Stephen, I don't, I don't know how long you've been British, but that... <laughs> <laughs> Famous for their excellent levels of self-awareness, the British. I think the reality, and Steve's completely right, basically. And you, there is not a word of what Steve's just said that is that is that I that I can think of. I'm sure others might be able to, but I can't think of a sort of single cogent argument to contradict anything. Can we go about our day now then? Yeah. See you later. <laughs> Bye. Hang on. No excuses. Homeschooling is over. Come on. Concentrate. Oh, do, do you know what? By the way, that was one of the greatest days of my time as a parent, waving them off to school yesterday morning. <laughs> 
Out of the door at six thirty. Yeah, just walks, just walk slowly, lads. I, <laughs> it's the first time in my life I've taken a photo of my children as they disappear into the distance. <laughs> now off to preschool club, and don't forget after school club. <laughs> yeah, we 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 need to make sure that we, you know, we've got to keep the economy ticking over by contributing to the wraparound care. <laughs> the um. It's understandable to an extent that people have found the reality of it a little bit grinding. I, I, I kind of get that. I, I don't think in answer to what Hugh said, I don't think there is really a, a differentiation between people working in it and people watching it. I certainly on my timeline, which is a, obviously a, it's a tiny sample. It's not necessarily representative. And amongst my mates I, who are not journalists, there are two or three of them. There is a kind of agreement that it does feel attritional, that there are a lot of games on, that there is this weird pressure to... Um, to watch more football than perhaps you ordinarily would because you can, that you find yourself kind of flicking a game on that you wouldn't normally be interested in because it's on, so you might as well watch a bit of it. I think that people are struck, this is maybe me kind of, people agreeing with me because I've said something and they've just gone, yeah, yeah, whatever, Rory. But I think there's an element of... Yeah, because, yeah, whatever, Rory. <laughs> <laughs> what are you drinking, Chinch? You've just like uh, I'm very a, obviously uh, open a large can of something. That's a, a can of, of water. That's a tin of gin no, and tonic from M&S Food. It's a can. No, 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 no. It's a can of water. Weird, isn't it? It's the most wasteful thing I can ever. I know. No, it's I better. Know. It's much better. The tap's okay, isn't it? Well, it's obviously it's obviously not met better than drinking out of the tap. No, that's that's clearly infinitely preferable. But it's better than a bottle. Water am I? It's better to have it in a can than a plastic bottle. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I was just thinking the tap was the option. The tap is the is the alternative, and you should be drinking out of the tap, Chin. Sorry, Laurie, I, I interrupted your, your, you did with your monologue. With your showy can of water. Look at me. I don't I don't have to take it out of the tap. The um big time Charlie. Takes the, a lot um, to fill the bath, though. I think a lot a lot of people <laughs> I think a lot of people are struggling with the fact that. It just doesn't seem to stop that that you get kind of there's not that sense and we talked about this before but there's not that sense of a match day there's not that feeling that the weekend has finished everyone sits in a different place in the table and you get a few days to kind of understand that and then a few days later you know a week later you get another match day there's none of that sense of occasion and I think all of that stuff is fair enough that the reality of it is is a bit kind of tiring and wearying and it's it just seems a bit sort of relentless even to fans. I think more and more people are probably finding themselves watching fewer and fewer games as, as the season progresses, because there's been a kind of surfeit of football. But where, where I think Steve's completely right is this sense of, of anger that we must do something about it. And it's because we seem to have forgotten why it's like this and that it's like this because it has to be like this. And the, the thing that annoys me with that kind of Danny Baker thought process of this shouldn't be happening Look at these clubs, they're just perfectly happy to play on without us. And it's not even that sort of older contingent of fans who are who are kind of of the of the kind of against modern football impetus, who generally have this dislike for everything that kind of encompasses the modern game and, and are happy to to encounter any stick at all they might beat it with. If you look at kind of the ultra scene in Germany, the organized fan scene in Germany, there is a a, a hardcore rejection of the idea that any of this counts, that this is there is this sense that football is doing this and it's in some way proving that the clubs don't care about the fans. And you just think, well, hang on, lads, that's, that's not what's happening. What's happening is these businesses are trying to do whatever they can to, to, to keep going as normal. And that, that's all. No one likes it. All this has done is prove how important fans are, fans in the stadium are to, to clubs, as not just in terms of providing spectacle and heart and soul, but in terms of providing money, they're all facing a massive financial shortfall. If they didn't play at all, they'd all go bust. No one has any choice, but this is the only thing they can do. And I, just as that that cohort of fans are, are seemingly willingly ignoring that, as though this is a choice that football has made, just you sort of randomly in like March last year, they thought, do you not be good if we didn't have any fans in the stadium? If we just didn't do that anymore, that'd be great. That in a way, in a way, in a way, that'd be better. That's not what's happened at all. What's happened is football has taken the only route it can to to survive in its in its kind of in, in its established form and not face some sort of grand reset. And I think what Steve's talking about is a, a related and adjacent form of that same thought process, which is there are there are disadvantages to the way football is being played at the moment. Obviously, obvious disadvantages. We don't like it as much. It's not as good as there's no fans in stadiums, obviously. And there is a is an ability or a willingness to kind of forget 
that what we're facing is is a necessity, not a choice. And therefore you can complain about it. It's, it's this thing, of the proper football men, isn't it, who don't feel as though current things are legitimate because, you know, it, it shouldn't be going ahead without them, but they, they, they seem to be willing to do untold damage to the support that they supposedly love by demanding that it be mothballed for 18 months until we can have full houses in stadiums again. The, the thing about the attritionalness of, of the football that is available at the moment is, is another curiosity because the whole point that all of the games are live on television is because fans can't be in the stadium, so they have to have access to the games. Yet there does seem to be a, a group at least of football watchers who, who watch even games that they are neutral to, who seem to feel as though they have to watch them all. That was never the intention. No, no. The, the, the schedule was created so that those that supporters who had absolutely no opportunity <laughs> of buying a ticket to see their team play at least had access to them on the television. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, are there other ways that we could have done that and retained a little bit more of the the traditional structure. I think the one thing that we can generally reflect upon as being sorely missed, absent from our lives, is that sense that at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, a majority of the games are taking place. You don't have to follow them all from start to finish. You can dip in and out of them. You can check the scores occasionally. You can stay across what's happening in terms of the bigger picture and catch up later on, whether that's via match of the day or football first or the goals when they go on Sky Sports News or on, on the app on your phone. It, I think it is a shame that we haven't been able to retain that one way or another, but it is perfectly understandable as to how the situation as it is now was contrived. And there doesn't seem any point in, in changing that. And, but let's just learn the lessons from it going forward. Yes and no. I think, as you know, Steve, from being a, a, a fervent Bundesliga watcher, the, the, there is still a majority of Bundesliga games that are kick, yeah. kicking off at half two in Germany on... No, sorry, half three in Germany, half two in Britain on a Saturday afternoon. And I, and I'm, I am slightly surprised that midway through this season, the Premier League, who do take the kind of temperature of fans and, yeah. and observers and, and what have you constantly, they, they, they do the, their market research in how, into how their product is being perceived, that they haven't thought of saying, right, do you know what, we, we can scale back a little bit on how many of these games are being broadcast in their own slots. Every game should be broadcast because fans can't be in the stadiums, obviously, but there is, is no real reason yeah. why you couldn't stage three or four of them at three o'clock on a Saturday. Look, I, I, I agree with that, Rory, right up until the point that you consider what the broadcasters are paying per game for the rights to show English football domestically. It, they simply weren't going to go along with that because of the, the dilution in terms of what it costs per game and having multiple games on at the same time. Whereas in Germany, that Bundesliga thing, that effectively, Hugh, we need to mute Hugh and not allow him to come in at this point. The NFL red zone style coverage has been a feature of their, their football coverage for a long time now. That thing of multiple games kicking off at 3.30 local time on a Saturday afternoon and that there is a, a service effectively, as I understand it, where you can stay across them. They, they, they jump in and out of them. You know, you can be a... And it, it's just like appointments to view within its own right. And, and there's no... Yes, there's no reason that we couldn't have done something like that here, but the, 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 the value of the, the, the domestic rights is such that it was probably felt that to get their money's worth, to get their value, to get the advertising they required to cover their costs, they, they, they simply couldn't have a... They, they, they couldn't be splitting the vote, if you like, in yeah. terms of having two or three games on you at the same time. can't split an already small audience, can yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, except I think you can. And Steve's, again, Steve, completely right and has much more expertise in this subject than me. It costs about 100 grand for a, a TV company to to set up and and film and broadcast a game. That's about the but, cost. But they've paid 10 million per and game paid roughly 10, in well, rights, they've, they? they've paid 10 million per broadcastable game in rights in, under the previous... And, and, and there are now more, so therefore... There are now far more games that they're broadcasting. Interestingly, those... those um, I think we've been through this before, but those... Um, the kind of straw shows on a, on a Saturday, so football, football final straw... 
um, uh, Soccer Saturday, which is obviously the, the granddaddy of them all, and the, the much more handsome BT Sports Score, uh, attract surprising numbers of viewers, to be perfectly honest. So I think Soccer Saturday gets about half a million, three quarters of a million people watching it. Uh, straw gets a quarter of a million, half a million. There's a lot of people watching these things. And to be honest, Final Straw, I don't know, but because it's BBC One, I'm guessing that Final Straw, especially in those those last sort of 20 minutes when it is when it is on BBC One and not on the red button, will be getting... It's about tre- it's about three times the audience. Yeah. It's three times larger than Soccer Saturday. So you're talking like 1.5 million people, 1.52 million people, which is a, that is a big old TV, TV audience, especially in the age of Netflix and Amazon Prime. The that is to an extent appointment to view television, and I and I do wonder whether a trick has been missed to some extent in saying why don't we put we swallow the cost of broadcasting the of having to stage the broadcast of the games. Although there is also a world feed, isn't there? So there's that cost would be split between people. It wouldn't necessarily be that BT Australia has to hand over a hundred grand. You, does it has to go out to the? They're all going out to the um to to the international broadcasters anyway. Why don't we do that red zone style program on a Saturday afternoon, turn Soccer Saturday and score into, into the, the, the goal show that they run, the BT run on the Champions League, which has been a massive success. Because you might then find that you get more viewers in the composite for that program than you do for every Crystal Palace Burnley game. Do you know what I mean? That all, all those games at three o'clock. I was waiting for the Crystal Palace Burnley. It was going to come up. It's inevitable. And, and crucially, that could have then been rolled out when this is over and fans are back in stadiums. I think that that's the crucial point, that they, they wouldn't have thought to invest in a programme that they didn't know would have any long-term benefits yeah. or place, because clearly that is uh, a good amount of forward-thinking, huge amount in terms of preparation and production into going uh, going into a, a completely different format, which is new for essentially a, a Saturday afternoon watching uh, British public, even though we are interested in watching football take place without the pictures. It's a brilliant idea. Steve's right. The NFL Red Zone is, is brilliant television. The Champions League goal show uh, on BT Sport is brilliant television because of exactly that. It gives you everything that you need to know without necessarily missing out on all the boring stuff that you sit there getting bored by and you feel disengaged by and then start to feel like there's a lot of football saturating your life and are you liking it and enjoying it as much. Chinch has been to more games than, than probably all of us um, over the course of the last year, and famously having been weathered by the footballing winds <laughs> over the course of his um, of his career, is there an element to, to and and the person that I mentioned right at the beginning of the show, somebody who was complaining about being at another football game, is is in a lofty position and should be complaining. But it was it, it was at a game that was cold, and it's we just had four months of winter weather. Is there a sense, Chinch, that those covering the game just you you're doing more games during the winter? It's cold you'd rather be at home tucked up in your nice bed socks. I've, I've not sensed that at all. What I, I tend to think, and I'm thinking it more and more because hopefully this situation is coming to an end, is that we should be really, or I should be really appreciative of, of having the opportunity to, to still be in work and going to watch whatever it is, Premier League, Championship football matches, big football matches, important matches. So actually, no, my, I feel completely the reverse, that I understand, again, why I'm in this situation, because it's a unique season. There is going to be more work because there's going to be more games televised. And I think, well, that's what ultimately I'm paid to do. And I really enjoy doing what I do. So, of course, I want to get back to the normality of fans in the stadium and get it back to being the fans game again. But I've appreciated it actually more and more, probably because I see that the end is in sight and think how lucky I've been during this time to be out there covering games and getting still getting paid to do this as well. So, no, I've... I just don't think there is. I don't, the thing is, I don't watch an awful lot of football unless it's the teams necessarily that I'm going to be covering. So I've never been a big football watcher. So this is kind of news to me that people are saying this or people from a certain standpoint are saying there's too much football on. Televising every game is too much. I'd have thought that maybe because of these circumstances, fans would understand why that's happening and think, well, yeah, it's not ideal, but this won't go on forever. But working within the industry, I've just been incredible. Yes, it's been horribly cold. And there has been games, I've done Leeds games, Sheffield United games, where it's been bitterly cold. But if you wear thermals and a heated gilet, you can get away with it. But I'm commentating on live Premier League football. So what's not to love? And I've, I've actually have grown more appreciative of the job that I've got and the responsibility I have during this time. But again, it's all because of the situation that we're in. I'm not going to complain about doing 
30 or 40 extra games. I've, I've loved it. Talking of lofty positions, I mean, a man wearing a heated gilet is the loftiest of all positions, really. Is it? It's, if yeah. you wear thermals, oh, the next step, the next that logical step. That is a 200 pound item of clothing, Chinch. 200 pounds. That you buy once that lasts 15 years. So how, how, pence per game is what I would say. That's the value of that item. It's not, a, it's not a frivolous item. It's something I need to to be out in the cold. Tax deductible if, as well. If it's minus and you're... St- it's, it's nothing to do with... It is tax deductible. Yeah, and I, I haven't put that on the balance sheet. Actually, yes, it's a really good idea. But no, it is. And more and more... I, well, actually, wait a minute. Someone I know has heated gloves. And to me, that's maybe... But maybe it's something next year that I'll have to think about. But am I, am I, I'm in my 50s going out into freezing conditions. Oh, you'd be collapsing. I've got to stay alive. Firstly, stay alive. Do a brilliant job with, with heat maps, but heat maps don't warm you up. Heated gelades <laughs> do. So you've, again, I've got to stay alive for 90 minutes. That's my primary concern. And then, of course, I'm naturally, because I've got a microphone, I'm going to do a brilliant job. Chinch, they're living up to his family motto, which is um, on, 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 the, on the, the Hinchliffe family crest, which is just a left foot. Um, the, uh, and the Chinese. Is, um, is, uh, it's a left foot covered in noodles. <laughs> which is non est tempesta, tempestatibus tantum nefas indumentis. That is your family motto. Just to keep up the really? classic theme. It means there's no such thing as bad weather, only the wrong clothes. Oh, yes, that's, love it. You see, there you go. This is what I'm telling all these, these new young pups coming along. They all turn up in their Armani suits and that for a game at, at Leeds in October. And I'm saying, I don't care how much prep you've done. In, in, in game graphics, forget it. You need a big coat, you need a big pair of boots and a woolly hat and gloves just to survive. Can I just make it perfectly clear that no young pup working in the television sport industry is affording, let alone buying an Armani suit? Jesus. Have you seen Lee Hendry recently? Well, he's a, he's a bit different. <laughs> he's not a young pup, though, Chidge. Just because he looks young isn't, doesn't make him a young pup. He's younger than me. That, again, doesn't make him a young pup. <laughs> the... Um, the, I think there's two separate things though. I think the the fact that there's that there's too much football, the, the perception that there's too much football on, is maybe because we have to an extent normalised our circumstances internally, and we've. Do you we've believe kind there is, of, Rory? Do you believe there's too much football on on the team? No, but I believe that the way it's being broadcast is not helpful. I think okay. I I do think that we have lost something. I do genuinely believe we've lost something in in the absence of that kind of Saturday match day event. I think that that is a it, this is this whole thing has been an opportunity to learn a little bit about what it is that we which kind of what are the pillars of our of our football culture what are the things that make up our football culture and one of the things that I think we've that they have understandably misplaced or lost sight of or whatever is the fact that it gives a lot of kind of purpose to a Saturday afternoon if there's lots of games on that you're not necessarily interested in so you mm-hmm. your team might not be playing but if you have four or five games kicking off at three o'clock on a Saturday, there is a general interest in, in the events of that of those games because they will in some way kind of affect your team's fate. And I think by So actually there's lessons to be learned from the broadcast from what's happened. This is I'm trying to set up an interview with a club. I've made kind of inquiries about what they've benefited, what they've learned from this season. Because I think there's an awful lot to be learned mm. from players' welfare and again game management or that type of stuff. So maybe the broadcasters have to do the same thing. Think, well, if this were to happen again. Would could we would we do it differently? So you've got to learn the lessons. Yeah, well, to an extent, alternatively, and... make the three pm kickoff a little bit higher priority because yeah. at the moment the three pm kickoff is essentially one of the last ones that they yeah. assign, and so yeah. that that feeling of festi- festival feeling of a three pm Saturday afternoon is significantly reduced by the fact it is left to the Crystal Palace and Burnley game to kick off at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. And and maybe we've we've learned a little bit about the value of the depth of the Premier League. I think we have talked about that a little bit and that there is, there's also, there's all sorts that we can, we can take from this experience and and think about how we, we absorb or how we should provide the football that people can absorb like going forward. And, and, and maybe the, maybe part of what we sort of, you know, coming towards a conclusion here is that perhaps it's because people have got so used to something that they believe that they weren't going to get used to it is a demonstration of how, perhaps this sense of being a little bit overwhelmed by it now is that because it's become, you know, when something becomes the norm, I suppose that's when you start to make a critical judgment upon it. 
So, you know, if you can try and take a, a, a positive from a negative, you know, maybe that's but a demonstration. You don't, have to, but you don't have to watch it, Steve. No, exactly. That's the fan watching You don't say, oh, I'm going to, it's another football match. I'm forced to then sit here and watch no, but I think, Burnley I, play Palace. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a Newcastle fan. You, you can understand why they watch all the Newcastle games, but you don't have to watch Every but day, I think no, but I think that that's where there's, there's there's two things that come in. One is the fact that it's on. T- people are conditioned to think there is football on TV. Therefore, I want to watch the football on TV. Also, there's not a vast amount else on TV. Have you kind of if you cycle through the channels? Bear in mind, people have been sat at home. There's a lot of people still furloughed. That there is there is you can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. Everything you know. We're obviously it's different around the world, but we're st- in Britain. We are still locked, effectively locked down. The the day we're recording, as Steve has mentioned is the second day that kids have been back at school, but nothing, not, Steve is now celebrating. <laughs> Again. The, the, there's no other... It's like Aguero with that winning goal there, wasn't he? He's off around <laughs> his kitchen. <laughs> the, um, there's, not, there's, there's no other option. And, you know, we're a year in. People, the pe- people who are lucky enough and well-off enough to be able to afford ne- Netflix and Prime and things like that will have watched everything they want to watch. There's a limit to how much you can stream stuff. There isn't a vast amount of choice in terms of entertainment, you can't go to the pub, you can't go out for a bite to eat, you can't, you, you, strictly speaking, legally, you can't even go and meet, meet your mates in the park, you, if that's what you want to do, if you're in your 30s and you meet your mates in the park, in the park as a sort of normal social activity, <laughs> there's something gone wrong, but, you know, there's nothing else to do, so if you're at home... Well, you could ta- combine sit-ups with press-ups, that could take some time up, couldn't it? If you're, if you're sat at home and there's a football match on, you might find that you are drifting towards it because because of the lack of alternatives, but you're also conditioned to think that football on TV is is exciting, and I wonder to an extent whether there is a problem with the general tone of football, of football generally, football broadcasting, the way football is covered, which is this kind of faintly apocalyptic last chance saloon. Everything's riding on this. That you know, you, commentators and journalists have to sell games to an extent. They have to make people want to watch. And when it's the 247th game that's been broadcast this season, I think that is probably quite tiring to people. And the other thing that kind of feeds into that is the fact that because every game has its own slot, there is, there is that endless feeling to it. And it's maybe that people aren't watching every game. I don't think, any, I don't think anyone now is watching every game, even, even the kind of ardent kind of football lovers who will watch absolutely everything. I suspect are beginning to flag a little bit now, but because the match day never stops, because you know there was, there was a game, there were two games last night, and we were recording on a Tuesday morning. There were two games last night. There were four games the day before. There were four games the day before that. There's two more games tonight in a different competition. There's two more games on Wednesday. There'll be a game. I think there's probably a game a, on and a Premier League game on Wednesday as well. Premier League game on Wednesday. There's a there'll be Europa League Thursday. There may well be a Premier League game Friday. There's more games on Saturday. More games on Sunday. Then there's Monday, then it's another Champions League week, then the Europa League, then the same again. Because it just keeps rolling, even if you're not watching, I think it becomes quite tiring. And there's, not, there's never that sense that you get on a Monday or a Friday or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, non-European weeks, where you just get to think there's no games on tonight. I know where everyone, you know, my team, wait, I've woken up this morning and my team is in the same position as it was yesterday. That never happens anymore, really. And that, I think, is, is tiring, even if you're not actually watching the games. And it also, funny enough, I was thinking before, in terms of manager quotes after games, they, they have much less power now because quite often they'll do the, the flash interview and the press conference on a, on a Wednesday night and they'll do a press conference on the Thursday morning to the plane again on Saturday. So there's not that chance to kind of feel that you know where your team stands. And I think that has a slightly discombobulating effect. On the basis of what Rory's just said, I'm actually worried about the nation's ability to deal with the gap between the end of the domestic season and the start of the European Championships. However that may take place, we still don't know. Is, is there going to be a Sky going to have to run in archive coverage of the Guinness Soccer Sixes just to give people <laughs> that opportunity to wean themselves off continuous football until it all starts again seven weeks later. You need that build-up that none of it, and actually that's probably just as relevant as anything else, that part of it is a kind of ennui with the fact that none of it can be that exciting because you don't have to wait for any of it. So do you remember with the, the Liverpool, it seems a long time ago now, when Liverpool Man United was being dressed up as the kind of titanic tussle for the top spot in the Premier League? There was kind of three weeks build-up to that because United, Liverpool didn't play for about nine days. And I think United played, but it was a, was it a League Cup game and there was maybe a relatively easy Premier League game beforehand. 
And there was this kind of sense of this is going to be a really big game and we get to build up to it. And obviously in the event, it was awful and it finished nil-nil, but there isn't build-up to any of these games. The Manchester derby at the weekend, which was first versus second going into the, into the start of the weekend, didn't feel like an event because it was two days after or three days after the last round of Premier League games. Liverpool played on the Thursday night, I think, against Chelsea. And then you had a game, a, a game possibly on the Friday and then loads of games on Saturday, then the Manchester derby on Sunday. There's no build-up to anything, so none of it feels special, which means that all of it just feels like this endless hamster wheel rather than that sense of there is a game I am excited about. Maybe that's more, more what it is. It's less that there's too much football and more that there's no football that you, you can actually anticipate. Maybe we like anticipating football much more than we realise. And, and one of the reasons why, when we were talking earlier about the fact that uh, you don't have press conferences, considered press conferences <clears throat> or interviews on the day after a game is because the football schedule, particularly in this country, yeah. doesn't allow for that. The structure that does allow mm. for it is, funnily enough, the NFL, which has a structure where every game is played in the same time each week. And so you, you are able to have in the NFL a Monday press conference. There is always a coaches head coach's press conference on the Monday. You'd have... Uh, post-match initial considerations mostly with players and then you talk to the to the coach on the day after but in in English football in particular that's much harder to do so I wonder if if we were to take the the entertainment parallel from the start of of this wonderful episode of set piece menu uh, brought to you by Jordanian Allen Keats <laughs> the um I wonder if it's the equivalent in a soap opera you know the the in EastEnders the d moment at the end of each episode. Do you want me to do it correctly? Or? Go on, do, do it. It goes, do, 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 do. There you go. So that, that big moment, that's what, that's what soap operas build up to, right? That's the structure of a soap opera is, is designed. Two crotchets, then triple, triplet crotchets, then four quavers. Baby Crotchet. See, see Mr. and Mrs. Ferris, those three years studying music at university weren't entirely wasted. That's what it's boiled down to. That that's, that's all he's got. It's the same as yeah. me, using, me using Google Translate to put your family <laughs> motto into, into Latin. Ah, yeah. oh, is that what you did? Of course I did. I don't remember, yeah. I don't remember any bloody is. Latin. That left foot that opened a can of noodles. The, um, <laughs> so, so soap operas are about anticipating those big moments, right? That's what, that's what we want. As a, it was what you want as a sort of any form of TV drama, really. You want those big kind of uh, cliffhangery, dramatic moments, the fights, the, the first kisses, the effect, whatever it is that you, you're into. Football's the same, and all of the build-up, the press conferences, and the, the wars of words, and the team news, and the injury updates, and all that stuff, they are all building up to these big events that are the games, particularly the kind of important games. What we've got now is effectively just a succession of those big dramatic moments because there is no build-up to any of the games. Just there's, there's, there's been a, there's, You can't build up to a game because there's, there's currently a game on. So what, how do you build up to it? And not only does that remove the anticipation, it also draws the sting from the dramatic event. So the, Hugh, I need your, your drum roll again, please, go on. Doom, 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 Has less effect <laughs> because it doesn't mean as much as you've had another one just beforehand and you're going to get another one in, in two hours time and that means that the whole thing the whole edifice seems to have much less significance so what we're bored of is not the sport itself it's the it's the 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 kind of lack of meaning in the sport because we we haven't had any of that kind of build up to make it feel important but what i'm interested in and this it's like, jack, it's like jack reacher headbutting someone in every line isn't it you need to yeah, build effectively, up yeah yeah splattering someone's nose if you did it in every line you just think yeah it would just become meaningless but there's no build up with jack reacher he does it very quickly snaps his neck forward and then boom you say the, the yeah, whole point about there is, there is the anticipation if he's, is... if he's with a group of men he is going to splatter someone in some way. You know it's coming, but the anticipation is there. You don't know when it's going to come. I actually de-clenched from football the other day and watched Jack Reacher 2. What's that one? What's the, the second movie? Jack, I've, the second I've, movie. I've watched one movies from my one, shot? one shot was the first one. That was the first Never one. go back. Never go back. I watched okay. that on the train home the other day just to de-clench the football. It was perfect. There's a lot of clenching going on in Jack Reacher. But the, 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 the final point is, is that if you don't have that build-up for the event, sometimes the, the disconnect is, is that you have a build-up to an event which doesn't necessarily match the build-up. If you have a build-up to a nil-nil like the Manchester United-Liverpool game that you, you mentioned, Rory. Yeah, but that's it, the point it, of it. It, it suffers 
by comparison. But because of the build-up, you don't necessarily it doesn't retain that sense of disappointment. So what but, happens? And, and your answer might might actually be to this anyway. What happens when we get to the Euros? When we do have build-up time and we do have that sense of festival fo- of football and that jamboree infused incessant football that we're used to in in packaged in a way that we're used to but we have had the whole year prior to it being that kind of football at that kind of regular interview interval does that affect the way that we enjoy something like the euros it probably does there will be a there'll be a knock-on fatigue as we alluded to earlier you'd like to think that maybe the as, as much as the clubs will have learned stuff and the and fans we as, as fans we should have learned things you'd like to think the media and the broadcasters will have will have picked up a few things that they've seen in the absence of fans in this strange season that they might think all right do you know what next time we're gonna not even next time it happens but we can take this into our into our coverage long term there might be a knock-on effect that people are uh, it's less that kind of jamboree of football and more oh great more football Except that I wonder whether that sort of two, three week break might act as a like as like a palate cleanser and we might might be able to separate psychologically from right everything we've been through this season. This is what that that's what that season, the COVID season was like. But the Euros are the Euro, they will still be the Euros. This is what tournaments are like. It will be normal. In terms of the nil-nil draws after the big build-up, that's part of the covenant we have with football. We accept we we accept, you know how there are there are people who follow American sports and complain that football is too low scoring to be interesting. The fact that football is low scoring is what makes it interesting. That's what makes it dramatic. That's what makes it popular. Does it builds up to those rare moments, which means they're special. If you're scoring constantly, every, every basket in basketball isn't special. It's hard to get excited about another, oh great, they've scored a hundred points. If two one can win it, then each goal means, means a lot more. And it's the same with, with big games that are boring. We know that most big games will not live up to expectation, but that's what makes the big game that does live up to expectations even more special. And that's that's our covenant with football. We accept that entirely naturally. I guess the problem is that when you're building up to everything constantly and selling everything that doesn't deserve it, it, it is in some way breaking that covenant. It's saying you can't guarantee us the level of excitement that you're promising us and we're tired of you over-promising and under-delivering. Under which is why I think the Euros will be a crucial moment because it will allow everybody to remember a different kind of oversaturated football and they'll, they'll actually not mind when it goes back to some sense of normality following this summer. And uh, one assumes that with fans back in, uh, the schedule will go back to normal as well uh, for domestic football. It is time for Nevermind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story. This is when Andy tells the tale from his playing or broadcasting days of all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. But because, understandably, Chinch... Uh, has had his mind elsewhere over the course of the last few weeks. I bring you this instead from Marcus Mitchell. Dear Willow Delightful Rump, Catkin Pretty Nose, Elm Sugary Face and Sage Beautiful Nose. Yeah, I put your names in a unicorn name generator. What of it? Firstly, I must apologize. I didn't discover the wonder that is SPM until November of 2019. My first episode was SPM 154 and I was hooked. After listening for a few weeks, I wondered what I had been missing in the previous 153 episodes and decided to test the theory that they were really indeed timeless by starting from SPM 1, back when it really was a tight 30 minutes. So began a strange journey of jumping backwards and forwards to try and catch up and also keep up with the latest episodes too. Then a strange thing happened. In the space of two days, I listened to SPM 203 followed by SPM 149. I heard a brutally candid soccer story from Chinch about his own struggles with mental health. And because it reminded me of a much darker time in my own life some seven years ago, my emotions got the better of me. And before I knew it, I was weeping in sympathy and simultaneous happiness that he felt strong enough to tell his story. In my own experience, I tended to be the guy that would always be available with a humorous quip or a self-deprecating anecdote, but it turned out life was pretty hard to endure. I'm in a pretty good place at the moment, and it seems Chinch is too, so thanks for being able to share that. Then, not two days later, and I didn't know what was about to come in this episode, I listened to SPM 149. Now, I certainly don't wish to stir up bad memories for any of you, especially Rory, but we all know how this episode started, by Rory telling us about the death of his brother. Well, last August, I lost my mother. She was only 66. I spoke to her almost every day and I miss her terribly. It's been months, but honestly, I struggle to be able to look at a picture of her or mention something she loved without breaking down. For the record, things she loved. Rod Stewart, twiglets, coffee, shoe buns, and anything with Hugh Jackman in it. (laughs) The way that Rory spoke on that pod was truly incredible only three weeks after Rob's death. I was in awe of it and my tears flowed again. Somehow that made me feel just a little bit better about things. So I thank you, Rory, and all of you for that. I realised that my email has been incredibly long, yet not mentioned football, which leads me to SPM 205, 
and a soccer story. Back in 2006, I was dating a Spanish girl from Madrid. Her brother, Fernando, is a very well-known DJ in the city and, as a result, can get his hands on things that regular folk cannot. To set the scene, we all went into the city around lunchtime, had lunch in this amazing backstreet cafe that no tourist has ever set foot in, then went into a bar for afternoon beers when I mentioned that there was a Champions League game later that evening. Fernando made one phone call and 30 minutes later, a guy walked into the bar and gave us two tickets to what was a sold-out game between Real Madrid and Arsenal. The stadium is amazing. The fans were incredible. The food and drink were delicious. The Galacticos on show were staggering. I even saw Jonathan Woodgate for seven minutes until he went off injured. Mm -hmm. Arsenal won 1-0 when Thierry Henry sliced through the fence and slid the ball into the corner with his left foot. Later that evening, Fernando was DJing at a club called Mundo. And while I was at the bar trying to sound Spanish so that I didn't have to pay extra for my drinks, a balding guy with huge eyebrows bumped into me lightly, immediately apologized and shook my hand. Imagine shaking a stranger's hand these days. Yes, you guessed it, that balding guy was Zinedine Zidane. My point is, that was a great game because everything surrounding it made a great game. The memories I have now because of that game are going to stay with me forever. Your podcast made me think about that game and for the third time, I cried with joy. That is from Marcus Mitchell, aged 41 and three quarters. Uh, keep mm -hmm. any soccer stories you have coming to menu at gmail.com. That's where you send any correspondence. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Steve, Rory, and Andy, and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. That's a, that's a really nice email. And I'm glad that, that we, we were able to, to provide some sort of solace, I suppose, um, through, through a really difficult time for Marcus. Um, I'm jealous that he met Zinedine Zidane. I'm and glad Marcus was given the opportunity for a bit of a humble brag, quite frankly, about yeah. the greatest day of his life, greatest day and night of his life in Madrid. I mean, that, that was a subpar Real Madrid team, though, wasn't it? Really, to be fair, that's not. You know, it was it was a difficult moment for. for don't Real worry, we've we, we've given him all sorts of comfort and solace, and now he's saying actually his experience was a little bit diluted by the fact that the 2006 yeah, Real Madrid team. Was a bit rubbish. He'd Did you really see a great Real Madrid? Not, not really. <laughs> he'd, been, he'd been drinking all day. You know, he's really not going to be able to offer any sort of intensive tactical analysis of that evening, is he? I apologise to Marcus. I've been holding that back so that Chinch could hear it because I know uh, that Chinch uh, would very much appreciate those sentiments too. And it's lovely to have you back, Chinch. Thanks for drinking water out of a can and then two separate drinks out of a Sports Direct mug and one that says, I am the best gardener. No, trust me, I'm a gardener. Trust me, I'm a gardener. Thank that you. That is... Trust me, I'm a gardener, that, but it is, that is not my mug, that's Nikki's. And the Sports Direct giant mug actually came. I ordered a, a football shirt and that came free you ordered, and gratis. You ordered a football shirt? Did, is it in England? Not, not for me. No, no. Did, did, I have to clarify this. Sorry, 1998. Not, I've just hang, on, hang on, Chinch. Did, did you get seven England caps because you bought a shirt and turned up? <laughs> no, that's seven not what times. happened. No, I'm sure I was in the squad. You yeah, sure? I did. I got the yeah. I was in the official. You're not just squad. like some sort of like like luxury version of Carl Power. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure. I should have kept. Really, it, I should have kept those. Was it in Hamburg or Gelsenkirchen squad lists? Was it Hamburg? Was it Hamburg or was it Gelsenkirchen? Hamburg or Gelsenkirchen? Chin's doing the natural fade out on his voice <laughs> like that <laughs> to save it to save Hugh one save tiny bit of editing. That's. That's experience for you there. Professionalism, that is. That's what that is. Right there. Well done, everybody. Thank